0: guys, you know, today we are sitting down with Arlen Roth, uh, besides being a, uh, you know, a solo artist with many, you know, albums to his name, uh, a sideman to any, everyone from the late John Prine to Simon and Garfunkel, uh, and and probably best known as an educator, as one of the original guitar educators through his books, which I have An original printing of his uh, complete electric guitar book from the early to mid 1980s. uh, To the, oh, golly, how many? Do you have any idea how many uh, different videos you did for Hot Licks?
1: Uh, Hot Licks, hi, Zach. Nice to see you. Nice to see you out there in Guitar Land, folks. Um, Hot Licks, we did approximately 220 or 230 videos. With about 180 artists. Yeah. Now what that allows for is the fact that a lot of artists did two videos for me, and I did like 46 videos. You know, because it was my company. Right. If I had one hour left in the session, I'd be like, Oh yeah, I'll bang out uh, rhythm and blues guitar. I'll bang out string bending. (laughs) You know, Arlen was always the one that could. You know, I started with my stuff, obviously. Yeah. First, First sessions were me and also John Antwistle, did a bass video for me. So that was how we started. And of course we we had been an audio company at that point for five years before I did videos. I started the company in 79 with my soon to be wife, Deborah, at that point. And you know, no gigs were happening. Uh, I was entering a lull. I had just done the Phoebe Snow tour and I was sort of doing like, for about 10 years I had this you know, six months on the road, six months home kind of thing. And then all of a sudden the phone stopped ringing. And I wasn't going to get another gig that quickly. I had Garfunkel in 78, Phoebe Snow in 79. I was still teaching whenever I was home, you know. I had a loft in the city, in New York City, which was right beneath the World Trade Center. I was a block from the World Trade Center. The World Trade Center was straight up. That's what you saw. And the sun would come out between that that's when we would get sunshine Hmm. and so i was there i was living with deborah and um i said you know we're broke we've only got at that point we only had like two thousand dollars left to our name and i said i'm going to start that that instructional company that i always wanted to do because i had conceived of it many many years earlier like around 73 yeah and uh So I started it with audio tapes. You know, you hear the audio tapes, you hear the horns honking in the background and all the noise around that downtown New York area. But when my teaching chops were hot, I'd jump in after teaching like five or six students in a row. I'd jump into the bedroom where I had the used tape recorder and I'd start doing these reel-to-reel, you know, lessons. And uh, Happy Traum... I had worked with, of course, Happy and Artie Trown for a long time. They get, kind of gave me my start Woodstock. And um, I uh, was going to do a whole series of more. I had done a, a slide guitar set for him of six tapes. So I decided that I would keep that kind of pattern going where they would be series of six tapes for sort of beginners who advance, whatever, you know, Nashville guitar, blues guitar, slide guitar, how to play guitar, how to clean your guitar, and no, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. You know, but, but I did a lot of that stuff. And then I had some, you know, some friends. I got to play uh, on the Garfunkel tour. I got to become good buddies with uh, John Jarvis, the great piano player. Yes. Well, so he did a series for me, a 6 tape series on rock piano. Uh, you know, Jerry Jamot did a bass one. Tal Farlow did an audio. He's like, this is Carolina Slim. Hi, everybody. This is Carolina Slam, you know. And then Jerry DeMott kicked over the big brass thing that we had for our tea, And he goes, and notice the addition of percussion in the background. You hear me laughing. So we kept all the outtakes are still in there, you know. It's like, I can't do Hot Lakes bloopers because the bloopers are all there. Yeah, already, you know? they're already there. They're already there. They're the bloopers. So, um, but then we got into video when I was doing the Crossroads movie with Ralph Macchio and all that in 84, 85, that period, that's when we went into video. So we were the first ones to do video. And uh, it was just a natural progression. I figured, okay, there's enough VCRs in the world now to justify the switch over. But at that point, we already had about a 100 and, I don't know what, 140 or so audio tapes before that. So I've been busy documenting forever, you know.
0: Yeah. So what inspired you originally to do this? Cause you said you'd, you know, it would like in 73. So what was it that I get part of it? I, you probably saw that, that gap in the marketplace because it was oh. like there was yeah. Mel Bay and they really, and you know, there really wasn't that oh. much else. And there was the Mickey Baker book, but there weren't that yeah. many
1: things out there. What can you learn from the Mickey Baker book? Except... <laughs> no, but it was, um, it was a, um, uh... It was a natural progression for me because I was doing so much teaching uh, to supplement my income and, you know, teaching, touring, teaching, touring like that. So the teaching always stayed up for me as a, in its importance. And also the fact that it taught me, you know, what I was all about. I'm like, I wrote my slide book, my slide guitar book when I was 19. And I'm like, how do I know this stuff? You know, I'm this kid in the Bronx I've been listening yeah i was listening to blues for at that point probably about uh, eight years or so and listening to everybody else too my musical influences were so broad and i loved uh just you know how you get into a, at a certain age you're just absorbing and absorbing you can't believe the rate at which you're absorbing things you know so i'm falling in love with all these guys and Sunhouse house and all these people and robert johnson and elmore james and before i know it i'm playing that, you know, I used to take my mother's uh, lipstick cover and play slide with it when I was like six, you know. So already I thought slide was an easier way to get around guitar playing. Maybe I saw Alvino Rey on TV or something. Right. But, you know, it doesn't matter where you're from, you get all this stuff, all this input, you know, and I would try to tune in the far off radio stations. I want to hear some country, I want to hear some Slide guitar, some steel guitar. You know, I love blues as well as country at the same time, and R and B too. So I was getting all these these influences from all sides. So I figured, okay, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna start teaching. I was teaching. Kids would come up on take the subway to my place in the Bronx. Sometimes I'd go downtown to give a couple of lessons. Of course, there were these two beautiful girls on 81st Street that I figured I'm better off going to them. <laughs> And so I would teach them and, you know, $25 an hour, whatever it was, you know, and I'd be taking the subway for four hours, you know, it didn't matter. The world was my oyster, you know. And so I loved the teaching. And of course, once I started writing the books, that really, that really got me excited. It got me turned on something about holding that book and knowing that you created this thing and that every new idea I came up with, they wanted to do another book, you know, that was
0: that was something that I wonder. Was it a hard sell to get a publisher to want to do a guitar instructional book?
1: Uh, well, no, not well. Of course, the first three books I did were for a music publisher. It was for music sales for Oak. Yes. Oak <clears throat> and then the beginner ones they called Acorn. You know, not quite an Oak yet. Yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah, so I. The, the funny thing about that was again I was so young. Uh, and they, uh, they had, Happy called me, and he said, you know, they want they want to do a book, a three-part book on pedal steel, dobro, and slide guitar, and they want you to write the slide section. because Happy was probably touting my slide ability. You know? And I said, well, first of all, I've got to tell them that that's three separate books. People don't want to pay, at that time, it was like, my God, $11. Oh, my God, $11 book. You know for a book this thick right. so i come down there and i bring my national steel and i start playing for them and i just charm the pants off of them and i said well listen you gotta do a slide book a dobro book and a steel book but separately fine whatever you say on them then i show them other stuff i walked out of there with a with a three book deal slide guitar nashville guitar because i was showing them my string bending and how to play blues guitar I said, you got to have a blues beginning book, you know, and uh, I was 19 years old and I walked out of there. I was like, I could, you know, kiss the sky. I was so just felt so high, like, okay, now you're you're putting yourself on the map. Now you count. Now you're you know, you're you're doing something that's going to contribute to the world and people are going to know you. So, yeah, and I got like, a, I think, a $150 advance. And uh, they said, and what are you going to do with the money? Like, little boy, <laughs> oh, I'm going to put it in my piggy bank. I can't wait to put it in my piggy bank and grow it. You know, it's like they. I realized, boy, they really think I'm super young. And they go, what are you going to do with the money? Yeah. It's, you know? I'm like, oh, gee, nothing. How about that? But uh, <laughs> but, it, <laughs> but it, was, um, it was a lot of fun and uh, very rewarding, you know. But then after that, I was kind of despondent. I mean, they sold really, really well. In fact, they broke some sales records, particularly the slide book. But uh, I got despondent with those kind of advances, you know so I figured that's not going to happen anymore. I'm done with books. And then one day, like ten years later, or eight years later, I get a call from a, a literary agent who said he had a deal for me with Doubleday for that book that you purchased sold right
0: right. Yeah
1: double and I said, "Well, what are you gonna get? Two hundred dollar advance." He was like, "How about ten thousand? Ten thousand? Are you kidding me? You know, I couldn't even pay my rent back then." So uh, I said, "Sure, that's great." So we met. You know, we met in the uh, Empire State Building. Arlen it's Arthur Schwartz, literary agent. We want you to come to the. I'll meet you in the coffee shop at the uh, at, at the Empire State Building. So then I'm like. I come in there and there's this guy sitting here already in a flop sweat smoking a cigarette that's like singeing his hair. He's got it up here. And I'm like, this is my literary, my new literary movie. So I said, Arthur Schwartz, literary. I said, I know you're my literary agent. You don't have to say it every time. So then I, go, I had to go to the bathroom. So I go in the bathroom and I'm in the stall, you know, old wooden stalls there. This is really early art deco stuff. And all of a sudden I see his like wingtip shoes coming into the bathroom. I see his shoes. So all in, like if Doubleday wants to give you 8000 what? I yeah. said, <laughs> step into my office. Come on, Arthur, <laughs> step into my, what a meeting this is. Follows me into the bathroom and start talking about the book. I said, wait till I get out. I think it might be a good idea. Step into my office, Arthur. But yeah. so anyway, that was, but he got me, actually after that he got me several deals. Uh, after that, you know, the, the, uh, Book people would always say, but can we meet with you next time? Can we like, you could tell him not to come here anymore? <laughs> <laughs> there was some kind of problem that, that the women would have with him. But uh, he was a little bit of a crude guy. But he, you know, he was hooked into that world. And so that after that book, then I did, you know, a few for Macmillan, Shermer, Macmillan, Shermer was very respected music book publisher. So right. they all had music." Um, Wings, you know, the double day one was tough because actually, believe it or not, even Jackie Onassis, Jackie Kennedy, worked on that book. She was an editor up there at that time, yes. So yeah. she was, she had a hand in that too. And then when I, when I took that cover, I'm sitting there with like a kerchief in my pocket. The, the photographer was like, You're sitting where Princess Grace, that's right, Princess Grace was just in that chair. So I'm like, oh, no wonder I've got a kerchief, in my yeah. Chair. I'm like, what are you doing to me? But they wanted a classy look, so there it was. You know, I was just going with it. Like, it's so exciting when these things are happening for you. Yeah. And, you know, it's not a corporate ladder when you're in music. You have to make it happen yourself. And your reputation kind of leads you forth. So the next thing you know, you're getting different calls and different, you know, different things like that, which is how I first got known, even up in Woodstock in the early days, you know.
0: Yeah. So, one, on on this book, I I just want to, you know, comment that, of course, you know, it's it's the mid-1980s. There's no internet. There's basically Guitar Player Magazine.
1: Early 80s. Early
0: yeah. Early, yeah. Early 80s. There's basically guitar magazines, and there's this book, and then there's the Mel Bay stuff. There wasn't that much. And in this book, you not only, you know, you talk a, a bit about the electric guitar, you talk about effects, you talk about amp, the, the majority of it is you know, is, is lessons and and licks and things like that. But also there's uh, recommended listening where you, you recommend, you know, Clarence White and Steve Cropper and all these things that I wasn't aware of. And so, I mean, so, so this, this was a, uh, this was a big book for me and it really, you know, kind it opened a lot of, uh, a a lot of different doors for a kid from, from South Texas that basically, you know, I mean, yes, I was exposed to Stevie Ray Vaughan and and heavy metal and conjunto music, and uh, right. so so it was a a big eye opener to get this book and and learn more about you know of course vintage guitars, learn about you know uh, R and B and country music that I wasn't really exposed to. So it was a, right. it was a it was a big a, a big deal. Well,
1: you know, it means means a lot to me too because people were always writing to me saying you know you had a huge influence on me. I didn't play guitar until I saw Crossroads. I didn't, you know, all these different stages in people's lives. Yeah. And I really, yeah, those are the kind of letters I could have written to the people that influenced me. Like I wish I could have met Clarence White, you know. I, yeah. I got to really meet Roy Buchanan. I never got to meet, you know, Roy Nichols or people like that. But these people had such a big effect on me, you know. And uh, all you got to do sometimes is just hear a little snippet of somebody. Next thing you know, they're they're your influence. Yeah. Sometimes I went through trying to learn everybody note for note. It's like you get a snapshot. I was too busy creating my own style to worry about sounding like anybody else. But you hear a little something, you know, like Clarence was doing, you know, all the... And I think, well, that had to be his fingers. I could tell it was something mechanical, bending the string, because I already played pedal steel. Right. But I had not yet played a Fender with the strings through the back. I had, a less, I had a 52 Les Paul, which I still have. So I'm like, it's got to be, it's got, you know, and, and he didn't get credit on that album, on the Younger Than Yesterday right. the album. There's no credit. It's, you know, Time Between and Girl With No Name, the two Chris Hillman songs, and Chris Hillman brought him in on those sessions. Exactly. I'm like, all this bending, you know, I was influenced by Yanofsky, Clarence White, you know, all the guys doing these little hammer ons John Sebastian says, your Floyd Kramer guitar.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So
1: this suddenly turned into
2: <laughs> If
1: I'm playing steel guitar, I also learned about moving moving those licks up and down the neck just like you're Moving the bar. Right. You know, carrying, part of the big sound is that you're carrying a string. The string keeps moving while you're playing that stuff. So, you know, the typical stuff is you always know, hear these guys
2: yeah. pull that,
1: that kind of thing. So, right away, turn it into bending. Yeah.
2: So,
1: bending is a wonderful substitution for. Hammer-ons and all that stuff, but I figured, well, I got to be real precise because that guy, whoever that guy is on that record, I found out later in *Clarence White, is using some kind of device to bend those strings. So, you know, I've to this day, I've never had. I do have one bender that these wonderful guys from uh, Scotland made for me, the Mackenzie string puller. Okay. It's three. It's the high E, the B, and the G. Dang. There's a, a clip of me playing at the Danny Gatton Tribute at the Birchmere. I, was, uh, I d- decided to debut that there. So I played regular guitar, but I also used it on a couple of songs because I did a long set that night, and I had the, um, you know, the, the three-string bender. The nice thing about the high E is that you, you flat it and come up, you can come up. So if right. you do contrary motion things, it's very much like a pedal steel, but you kind of have to stand on stage motionless and just stand there and step on the pedal. And I like to be able to move around. Right. I don't like being, you know, yeah. attached to something too much like that. I don't want to be able to be, to feel free on stage, you know. But yeah. performing is my first love, really, you know.
0: Let's hit on something that you, you mentioned, you know, kind of in passing in that uh, you have to make it happen.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Tell tell us how, you know, tell us how you make it, how you've had to make it happen in your career.
1: Oh, well, I mean, yeah, make, to have to make it happen. No question about it. You know, you can't, um, you can't predict what's going to go on, but you can force the issue if you're, if you have the confidence. Now, at a very young age, I had a lot of confidence when I went up to Woodstock, the town of Woodstock. Yeah. I had a band called Steel, and we, we were actually from White Lake, New York, where the festival, the original Woodstock Festival was. Right. You know, Yazgur's farm, we drank Yazgur's milk, you know. So I, we put on, the next year, 1970, we put on the first uh, Woodstock anniversary concert. And there were 40,000 people there. I always say it's the 40,000 who remembered where they were previous year. I mean, Maybe they never left, you know. I think they didn't leave, I don't know. But we played for them. We played three straight days. We were the only band. And uh, so that was really cool. And so then after that, that was really the beginning of my more, you know, quote unquote, professional career. And then as that, we were that band, we would go up, I was in Philadelphia College of Art, and they were living with me. One of them was, uh, you know, my roommate. And the drummer was living with me, Roy Faber. He was living with me. And so uh, we were very dedicated to having this band and being in the music, you know. And he was so young. I was 17. So we would go up to Woodstock and we'd sit in at clubs, you know, like Buzzy Feeton had a band there called Bang. And it was a place called the Sled Hill Cafe. And I come up I'm like, can we sit, sit in and your break? You know, you're having your He's like, okay, man, you know, but be careful. You plug into his hands, be careful, man. Yeah. And I remember one time we played there, it was so flooded. We had to all stand on, on milk cartons so we wouldn't get electrocuted. You know, standing there playing. I was a good time to use my string bender. You know. But uh, <laughs> sitting at the bar, there's Paul Butterfield. I'm like, I am like, I really want to impress Paul Butterfield. Yeah. He had nothing but the best guitar players. Mike Bloomfield was my hero. You know. Yes. And I'm like, man, I, I want him to listen. He's like, hey, you hear this kid? This kid over there, get, like I, I, I'm watching him saying that, you know. And he's sitting next to Paul Siebel, who is also a wonderful songwriter. And uh, a friend of mine recently posted about that night, and she said that Van Morrison was there at the bar, which I don't remember Van Morrison being there. But she said he was there, all dressed in denim. So she remembers what he was wearing. So it must have been
3: there. Yeah.
1: But uh, you know, you could. I forced myself to get out there and be heard. And there was another uh, restaurant there called the Joyous Lake. They got to be pretty uh, legendary too. And I just jump up on stage with people. I remember one night I went up there and I was jamming, I think it was with Rick Danko and a bunch of other people, and this guy in the audience, a total stranger, just stands up and he goes, Let's hear it for the lead guitar player. Let's hear <laughs> it for those that he's playing up there. And I, was, yeah. I realized that people were really hanging on every note, you know. So it was uh, that's the kind of, uh, you know, positivity that you need at an age like that. And I knew that the way I played was different than other people, you know, that I had something to offer even at that age. So uh, I would go up and be heard. Next thing you know, the phone would start ringing. John Simon, who produced the band. Yes. me up for, for my first session in New York City in 1973. And I was playing basketball out in Queens with some other people in another band that I was getting ready to tour with the Bee Gees. And I get this phone call and I had just torn my ankle. I'm playing basketball, I tore my ankle up that day. And next thing you know, I get a call that you gotta be down at RCA Studios now. And I'm like, oh great, great. So my father, I'm still living in my at my parents' house in the Bronx. My dad took me down to RCA, you know, it was this great session. was for an album by a singer named Rachel Farrow. Okay. And I remember when I was doing the Paul Simon thing years later, the Cake Man, I ran into um, the great Timbali player, the, the Latin Puerto Rican player, um, Puente, Tito Puente. He was on that album. <laughs>
0: wow.
1: That's all I ever played. So I said... I said, Tino, you know, we're together, we're on the same album there. The first, he goes, some chicks probably, right? Some chick. Yeah. Said, it was some chick. I said, You're right, it was some chick. So <laughs> it's just so funny. But so I said, Yeah, it's great. It's true, it was a chick. But you know, that session was great. I mean, they had to carry me around. Harvey Brooks, I remember, and and John Simon, they, they walked me to the bathrooms, so like you go to the bathroom. Again, another bathroom story. Oh, I got a book for you. <laughs> So he put me in the, in the bathroom and I'm, you know, but Harvey Brooks was playing bass. and Dave Holland was on, ba- on the upright bass. There were all these different players. Jack DeJohnette on drums. And it was all live, all cut live in the big RCA studios. So exciting. Yeah, that was so- like 20, you know.
0: So there were, you know, so you so I guess I guess you got to be a part of that, that Woodstock scene when it was going oh, on yeah. when the when the band was still there and,
1: oh, and Albert,
0: Albert Grossman and all the people he was managing and
1: you couldn't you rent know. an apartment unless you said you were working for Mr. Grossman. <laughs> oh yes, I'm with Mr. Gros I wasn't with him. you yes. worked for Mr. Grossman? Yes, I worked for Mr. Grossman. Oh, you're in. You <laughs> like, owned the town, you know.
0: Yeah, and you you talked about buzzy was uh was Robbie Robertson still around, or had he already moved on to uh to l a oh,
1: oh they were all around sure this was nineteen seventy yeah seventy one they were all there, and I remember when the band would release a new album like i I can remember when they came out with the album cahoots yes, I think it was maybe their fourth album or something like that. It was after stage fright, and you'd be in Woodstock and like every bar was filled with hundreds of people just listening to the new album, you know. I remember this girl saying, I love those little horn parts. In the end, da 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 And, like, everybody, you know, like, studying it. It was like a new, exciting thing that's released, you know. And uh, I'd see the band from time to time. I didn't know at that point one day I'd do an album with Levon Helm, you know, which was unbelievable experience to work with him. Yeah. What a world-class musician and guy, you know. But, uh, yeah, you see them around town. And I, I got to meet Rick Danko years ago when I was in college still in Philadelphia. There, you go out to a restaurant at night. Uh, and there was, was Rick Danko and uh, Garth Hudson. You can't miss Garth Hudson. Yeah. You Garth Hudson, wherever he is, you know. And I start talking to them. And then years later, I see Rick uh, at the Joyous Lake at that restaurant. He goes, hey, man. I remember meeting you in a restaurant in Philadelphia and you were even wearing that cowboy shirt. And it struck me as such a surprise. At that moment, I even forgot about that. I'm like, oh yes, he was right. You know, and because he'd go from like kidding around all of a sudden to very serious. I remember meeting you because he talked to Blue Streak to me that time. And we talked about the Woodstock Festival. He's like, we don't like outdoor concerts. You know, right away, the band had their their thing you know yeah Such great such unbelievable position I mean, that that groove my god if any group could have the name the band the perfect name for them
0: yeah you, got it, you know what I, was robbie an influence on you
1: no not at all. yeah, really. oh, yeah. <laughs> no i mean no I, I never considered him a i mean sorry robbie i never considered him a great guitar player or anything but i love the songs yeah i mean Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, probably one of the greatest songs ever written by far.
3: Yeah.
1: And uh, talking about pure genius of songwriting, you know? Uh-huh. So in that sense, yeah, of course he's an influence. Yeah. All influences, you know? Yeah. I remember he, being at Ronnie Hawkins' house when I was on tour with John Prine. We're like, we're going to go up to Ronnie Hawkins' house now. You know, I had this Triple O Martin, Triple O 18, 1939, that I had just bought from Ry Cooter when I was in L.A., with John Prine. Next thing you know, it's 20 below zero and we're up in northern Canada, northern Ontario, and I left that guitar in the car.
0: Oh, damn.
1: Guitar was fine. I said, well, if that guitar can survive that, it's going to be okay. And that guitar was a big acoustic for me for like about 30 years, you know.
0: So, So, yeah, talk about John Prine. I mean, John Prine, you know, one of the, you know, great songwriters the last, you know, Fifty years or so, and at, you know, what at what point were you touring with John?
1: Seventy-five.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: he was doing an album with uh, Steve Cropper was producing it, and uh, like when Cropper just played on this new album of mine, he's being interviewed for the movie, and he goes, "Well, I, I wish I had some and Roth stories, but uh, I guess you know he was busy while I was busy." I'm like, "I got plenty of Steve Cropper stories. <laughs> he just doesn't remember." That was there, you know. So I remember recording with you with Paul Rothschild. I'm like, yeah, there you go. You know, but he, um, it was interesting because Prine had, at that point, it was like his moving from his acoustic thing to having a band. So he, uh, he would do the opening of the show in a cloud of cigarette smoke with his acoustic guitar and sing, you know, Dear Abby, Dear Abby, you won't believe this. And then he'd bring out the band.
0: Okay.
1: And do the, the rock and roll, John Prine. Kind of,
0: almost like a Dylan thing. <laughs> yeah, like a Dylan thing.
1: You know? Yeah. But it was that was a that was a wild tour. Oh my god, you know, it's a big experience for me because it was the first time I'd already been on the road, but never for that extended a time. You know, it's like five six months. You know, and sometimes you'd be in the bus for a week, and we only made a hundred bucks because we were doing one show. It's nothing. Like we're going from show to show. We'd go do a show and then meander for a week. And then get another show and meander again. I'm like, this is crazy. So I started going home because I was working on my books at that time. I was actually doing those books on the bus.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And one day the band confronts me. We're in Idaho. And we're just driving through. And the band says, you know, we decided we're kicking you out. We're, get, we're You're not one of us, Arlen. You're not one of us. And I'm thinking, one of them. You know, these guys, they're just getting high all day and all night and chasing after these girls, and I just wanted to be home. I missed the girl I was in love with, and I had work to do. And I started bursting out crying. I'm crying on the bus, you know. I was like 21 years old, and I, was, I they shocked me so much because I was practically the band leader. And all of a sudden, they're telling me, you're out.
0: Right. Like, and and it's... I'm
1: Al Benetta, God bless his soul, my dear friend who passed away, the manager, John Price, we became close friends for our whole life. He comes out and he goes, You guys are just jealous of Arlen because you're, he's working on books now. He's got things to do other than just being on the road. And he said, That's what you're, you're, you're complaining about. And that just like shut down the whole thing. And that, that was the end of that, you know. And, uh, but Al was so you know, wonderful. He had such a feel what I was going through, for what all of us were going through, and what it was like to be on the road, you know, and to manage—he managed John Prine and Steve Goodman. I got a chance to play a lot with Steve Goodman at that time too. He was wonderful, just wonderful, you know. Both Chicago, born and raised, you know.
2: Hmm.
1: Like, I would be like, Arlen can teach me another chord so I could write another song. I'm like, another chord? Any chord? <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, sharp. You know, what, what do you want? <laughs> what piece should that chord be in? I don't know. But he was great. He, we had a routine on stage where he'd come up, you know, and he'd be like... Yeah. Always being a, a typical folky, you always have a string out of tune. Yeah. The thing that those folk guys always do is while they're talking to the audience, they start tuning the guitar to the string that's out of tune. Yes. Like, and then I'd going, oh no, we better all start coming up, ladies and gentlemen. Right. we would be like... Be like this. And I walk, I go, your B string is flat. He goes, I don't know what that means.
0: Right.
1: He says, Well, Arlen, just reach behind me and start tuning. So he would start playing you know, and I'd be like, I come behind him. And I said, part <laughs> of our shtick, you know. And he was so it was really funny. He was he was really good though to work with, but it was very kind of fresh and new to him and very the idea of a band you know like those kind of guys you got to just like stay on your feet and because he's not playing like he's part of the band you know right if they a folk artist a lot of times when they play the wrong chord then they just keep on playing they lose their place you know it's like no we're in a band here we got to play together you know right everyone is keeping time yeah and chords or whatever you know. and and
0: that's why many times you hear the band and you don't hear the uh the singer's guitar anymore all of a sudden you're only yeah, hearing their right. voice and the sound man has turned yeah, his cool guitar off. down <laughs> yeah because he's playing out of time and the wrong chords that's yeah
1: true. yeah or with somebody in the audience like me saying take the
0: guitar yeah
1: it's, yeah it that happens
0: that happens a lot yeah so yeah with Prime's earlier he had, he had done some stuff with atlantic and like reggie young had played on some of that and then uh and then but it was still more more subtle like uh volume swells and things like that you know it was it was still kind of folky stuff and then and then it went on to more band material yeah. yeah
1: yeah it was uh very interesting you know i mean the tour the tour was rough because we they canceled it 6 months before so it flip-flopped so we ended up doing canada in the winter and the deep south in the summer Ugh. I mean, I can remember places where we played where I actually went on stage with no shirt. (laughs) Yeah. Because it was like 120, and we were indoors, and we were playing with the meters, you know, with the meters in in Baton Rouge, and, uh, you know, just all those wonderful, I mean, that was one of the great things, was that we would always go out and jam with people, and play with people, and... You know, I remember one night in Louisville where the, the guy, other guys in the band ended up in jail. Something happened where they ended up in jail—some fight in the alley or something. You know, and uh, I—you I, know—it it, was—it was a big thing to be on that tour. And then when I came home, I realized how how uh, high strung I had become from that tour. You know, we start snapping at people and yelling at people, and like, like, oh my god, what am I? What's happened to me?
3: Yeah. You know,
1: like on this. On this plane of like high energy stress that I'd never known before, but you can't recognize it because you're too in the middle, in the thick of it. You know? Right. That I learned a lot on that tour. One day our bus got stolen back by the people who leased it to us. Al, look out your window. Your bus is gone. <laughs> We're in Austin. The bus is gone. It's been <laughs> it's been home for like six months. And everything's on the bus. We're 100 miles outside of Austin. And if you want to get your belongings, come out and meet us. So we go on the bus. We get everything. We ended up having to rent this really bad Winnebago. We did the rest of the tour on a Winnebago. And, Winnebago. and one day, a couple of months later on the tour, I'm going from – we're still going I'm still on tour. Going from Chicago to Louisville and – um the only people who awake on the bus are me. I'm riding shotgun with Donnie Placco, who was our driver. And all of a sudden he goes, Sam, Sermons, the bus! And the bus passed us right, right <laughs> in the middle of the country. And he had to cross, you know, like guns on front, two guns like this, and a Confederate flag. And it was this, this gospel guy, Sam Sermons. <laughs> and there he was, and to this day, none of the guys in the band that i ever believed that we really saw the bus. They said, no, yeah, it's impossible. It was like, <laughs> Phantom 409. <right? laughs> and it was, uh, it was amazing. You go, That's the bus! And it just goes, kind of zoom, like that. And, because uh, I also, I didn't like, I had a hard time sleeping on the bus, because you're always yeah. in the bunk or something, you know? Yeah. Not in the stateroom. But, uh, yeah, John, it was still great working with John. John was such a pleasure, and, such a great songwriter, you know, so true to the heart and straight to the heart, you know. And Cropper was producing that album. I, they flew me out to L.A. because I joined the band. We were rehearsing at S.I.R. out there. You know? I got to see Little Richard in his mirror suit. He's going, shut up, shut up, shut up. I got to see Stevie Wonder shooting pool. I swear to God, Stevie Wonder was shooting pool.
0: How does that work?
1: The five guys around him going like, what are you looking at? You know, yeah. I said, well, there you go. He shoots pool, okay. So I'm there with Prime, and we go to this session. I have one, there was one overdub left on the album. And I'm there. I walk into the studio. Now, I wasn't being told I was going to play the guitar, but I showed up. I'm there. At that time, I had my 54 strat. I didn't have a telly yet. I got the telly while I was on tour. In the studio, there's Bonnie Ray, there's Jackson Brown. There's the Eagles. There's Croppers producing, you know. They're doing vocal overdubs. And I'm there, I'm out in the hallway playing. And Bonnie keeps going in. She goes, Arlen's got the part, man. Let Arlen play on this thing, man. And I'm thinking, this is my my chance to break in with all these people. And even Jackson Brown was like, you know, your style would be really interesting to me, you know, if I go out on the road. I'm like, yeah, it is interesting to me. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I ended up you know whatever that's a different story but uh, uh, they uh, ended up you know proper goes yeah I know Arlen's a bad boy Arlen's a bad boy and he's like come on let on, let Arlen do it he's a bad boy you
0: know, he's I'm a like, bad boy
1: I mean, I'm a good player whatever he didn't remember this story of course but uh, he let Glenn Fry do the guitar which you know he was a really nice guy that night I met him and Glenn took about, you know, an hour and a half to get the, these, like, six notes right. Yeah. And they, they met, bet the session pay on uh, the Super Bowl, which let me know it must have been in January. But um, I was like, damn, you know, I could have been... I mean, I was still been touring with John and Bonnie. I've known Bonnie ever since. You know, I mean, the good things came out of that, for sure. But if I had just had that one... It was the last session on the album. I think it was... Sweet revenge,
3: yeah,
1: might have been sweet. Sweeter so revenge, but uh, you know, Cropper, great to work. Uh, Cropper is such a great guy, man. You know, it's unbelievable, unbelievable. Such a pleasure to work with him on this new album too.
0: Yeah. So, so then you 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 were working with Art Garfunkel, and then you end up with Simon and Garfunkel on one yeah. of their on the, one of their big world tours. Who? Uh, was, uh, who was the other guitar player on that? Was it Sid McGinnis or who was...
1: Yeah, Sid from the uh, David Letterman show.
0: Yeah. And so was, was that kind of your biggest taste of, uh, of touring with, uh, with Simon it and was, Garfunkel?
1: It was certainly the biggest tour because yeah. we had 107 people and we were playing stadiums every night. And it took me a while to realize that every night I would see a different crew that they were leapfrogging the cities. Right like they'd be tearing down Chicago while the other ones were putting up Milwaukee. Right. Two, you know, like that. And, uh, you know, many buses, 13 or 14 buses. And one day we finally came home and it was, um, uh, uh, we play at giant stadium in, in New Jersey. We're finally home. You know, we're all there with pregnant wives, everybody waiting for us. And, uh, that's an exaggeration of course, but it's kind of like that. Certainly in my case, it, true and uh we play we you know we we did a rehearsal sound check and then we go back to the hotel which was the hyatt hotel in east rutherford like right there in the middle of the marshes the the wetlands and we walk in there we're so used to being catered to the whole tour everywhere we went there was food 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 so we walk in and there's food all over the place there's all these terrines of food so we start grabbing plates and we're taking food and we just sit down this is this makes sense, right? Bagels and lox. Oh yeah, we're in New York. We miss all this kind of food, you know. So we sit down, and this woman says to me, "She goes, so how do you know the bar mitzvah boy?" <laughs> I'm like, "We're in a bar mitzvah. This is a this is not our food. This is like we just we just horned in on this whole thing." I said, "Well, he's about five feet tall, and he's uh, our lead singer." Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> no, but it was. Uh, Really crazy, but I said, Oh my God, hey, everybody, this is not our food here. You know, they still didn't mind that it. it was like the Simon and Garfunkel tour eating food at this bar mitzvah. But um, so funny, you know. And that was, yeah, we did that. We were doing all the stadiums, and the European swing was not that big. We did like France, Switzerland, uh, and Israel. Israel was fantastic because we got to tour all around Israel. And we went into the Dead Sea and we put on this black mud. And we were all posing like muscles, you know, like, and uh, everybody else had swimming trunks, but I didn't realize we were going to be doing that. So I still had that skinny little 80s underwear, you know, and everybody's looking at me like, what's, what's he wearing? You know,
0: <laughs> he's got his underpants on.
1: <laughs> I'm like, and I just shaved and I'm burning from the salt water right. in Dead Sea, you know, like, shh. but uh, it was amazing. A lot of fun, you know, Richard T. was in the band and uh, great horn section, you know. And I got to do all these great solos. You know, I got to play a lot of solo stuff on that tour. Nobody else had solos, but I had this long, you know, sort of country rock solo that would uh, go from Kodachrome to Maybelline, you know. And it was really, really a lot of fun. Some of those great songs. And of course, Paul at that time was my student. Right. Before that, he was my... Doomed, which really meant more it wasn't like i was giving him lessons it was more like inspiring him and giving my ideas working together on his songs you know so excuse me one second i dropped but, you, uh, yeah, you
0: yeah you were you were giving him some tools to help him in his songwriting right yeah and
1: it's great cuz he would very proudly show it to me like the next day he'd be like look what i did look how i put this in to the song you know So he was uh, he loved getting that those little tips and little, you know, um, nuances. That he needed to really collaborate with what he did. You know, he'd say, I'm stuck. You know, I'm stuck here. This song just seems stuck. And then I'd come up with what I would have thought of as an obvious change. And he's like, wow. You know, like, it, it dawned on him that that was the right thing to do at that moment. But it might have been totally different. Like, you know, jumping up a key and a half or something where i just you know as a listener would would right away jump in and have a new a new suggestion but that that was great about working with him i felt very uh, honored because the one hour guitar lesson would turn into like 3 hours of teaching i'm just not teaching i'm working together yeah
0: so so let's talk let's talk more about hot licks so you know, of course you know you you know, of course, I remember seeing the, you know, the ads, even for the audio tapes back in, you know, Guitar Player Magazine and, 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 and such. And so you made that, you know, you were doing the books, you were doing the audio tapes. And then again, I guess, making you a know, living. pardon me,
1: making a living,
0: making a living. Exactly. I mean, that's what we all have to do. And, uh, and then, of course, you know, you said you were inspired by, uh, by working on the Crossroads movie. And at that point, you felt like, you know, that uh, I think, I guess you had been around cameras and, and, and sets and all those things enough to where you kind of, you just felt more comfortable with.
1: Uh... It wasn't really that. It wasn't really that. I mean, I, it just happened to coincide. Okay. Making the video transition. Uh, I was still teaching Ralph Macchio out on Long Island. We hadn't started any filming yet. I was just teaching him stuff. In his, you know, I saw him four days a week, two hours a day for two straight months. Wow. And, uh, you know, I realized that it wasn't going to, he wanted to really be a guitar player. I said, well, you, this cannot happen in two months to make you that good, you know. Because I was showing him classical, I was showing him slide, I was showing him electric, finger style, you know, I'd be like, cut! And he'd go, I know, I missed the b string, You know, because they had me sometimes in the director's chair directing those scenes. Walter Hill was so sweet. The he's like, Arlen, you know more about this than me. You sit in the director, I'm going into my trailer. You direct the scene. I'm like, what? Yeah. I'm in the middle of a, of a Mississippi cotton field, and all of a sudden they're looking at me like, okay, you know, like, like you're directing. It's wonderful.
0: Yeah. But, so on 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 this, you're the only guitarist on the set. You know, you're you're yeah. doing that, and then of course you know, Ry Cooter, you know, worked on the on the on the soundtrack. And then, of course, there is the scene with Steve Vai. Yeah, it's just—it's funny. You know, this is a—that movie is a big favorite of guitar players. Uh, guitar players yeah. lo- love that. Now, yeah,
1: you know, never <laughs> stops. There's always some new thread on uh, on Facebook about who played what. Right. You know,
0: yeah. Yeah. It gets it gets silly, but
1: what what what
0: was just one of your favorite memories from the, from the film?
1: Oh God! Besides
0: getting to direct some scenes.
1: Yeah, that was a great memory for sure. I mean, it's just so much fun. I mean, of course, a lot of the stuff that went on behind the scenes was really incredible. Like me and Juke, Juke Logan, the late, great John Juke Logan,
3: right. who played all
1: the harp. And later on, Cooter replaced it with Sonny Terry and then replaced me with himself.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I came up with all that stuff. You know, I played all those things with I think one of the most exciting and most wonderful, memorable things was just being in the middle of that cotton field and that silence at about 6 in the morning and then telling me, "Okay, we want Ralph to be playing on the scene while he's walking down the dirt road. So I had a little battery-powered PV amp that I found in the local music shop there. And Hartley PV always goes, I love that story. So hardly you know, it's got this little battery-powered PB because we're a million miles from any electricity. I even told Walker Hill, I said, what's with these telephone wires? This is supposed to be the 30s and Robert Johnson, you know, those are telegraph wires. There's one skinny little telegraph wire going for like, miles. And they, they got all these wonderful locations in Mississippi, you know. So I just remember being there and coming up with this piece, you know, that, that slide piece that he plays at the crossroads. Yes. Leg and all that stuff. I did that, and I just remember then the whole, in that air, and the, the recording engineer going, I'm just going to record some air now. Everybody be quiet. And he's just like getting the sound of the air. And it was total silence, just wind. And then everybody just clapped. I played, and everybody clapped for me. And all I did was improvise, you know. I didn't write anything. That was writing. I made it up on the spot. Right. I did what I knew Ralph could fake to. You know, I didn't, uh, I I knew what he already knew from my teaching him for two months. You know, it's like I taught him like March, April, and then we started filming in May. But the first thing we did was, you know, I went out to L.A. and me and Cooter caught, we, we recorded the, uh, original ending. At least we started working with it, which I have on SoundCloud. I have that tape. I discovered this tape but full of all the stuff that me and Ray Cooter did, which is phenomenal stuff. Me, Cooter, Jim Keltner on drums, which I think my favorite thing was about getting to play with Jim Keltner, yeah. my favorite drummer by far. And Jimmy Dickinson on piano. And I'm like, this is heaven. you know. I'm in the studio with these guys and Excuse me. I had had stuff with Cooter before then, like five years earlier, but, um, you know, it was fun just doing all that stuff. And when I found that cassette, I said, well, I got to post this stuff on on SoundCloud. It's got thousands and thousands of listeners, you know, because that's the original ending. And then Walter Hill was there, the director. He goes, it's not enough of a boxing match. I Oh, here we go. He wants it to be the Crossroads. He wants it. I mean, he wants to be the Karate Kid. Yeah. So sure enough, you know, enter Steve Vai. He's going to be the wise guy who's going to beat up the kid on the guitar. And I'm like, oh, I I, I was not a fan of that happening. But, of course, if you take it for what it is and you've never seen anything other than that, you say, OK, there's the movie. It's a little bit of a cheesy engine and an ending like, like, oh, we can't reach the highest note. Oh, no. Yeah. It's yeah. not a trumpet movie. You know, it's not about trumpet. Yeah. Alice, I'm going to make that highest note. You know, Ralph Cramden, The Honeymooners. Right. No, but it was a little bit silly, but, you know, it was a lot of fun, and I got to be good buddies with Steve Vai. As a result, we had we had to get thrown out because we were laughing and giggling too much, just carrying on. They, they threw us out. said, man, this guy is so relaxed. It's his first day on the set, and we were already getting thrown out because we were laughing too much. You know, and um, Shuggy Otis was originally, there was a scene where Sugie was the guy that you saw getting defeated as, Steve, as um, Ralph enters. Okay. And um, it was great because I went to Shuggy's house. He did like an audio set for me, you know, for Hot Licks. Just went, went to his house in L.A. there and recording. We had such a great time together. And then that ended up on the cutting room floor. I was so sad because I said that would have really, you know, brought back Shuggy in terms of like the public awareness of him. Yeah. Um, so that was a shame that that had to be cut from the movie. Yeah. But, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of great, great scenes and great memories. You know, it's so, so much fun.
0: Did you have anything to do with the uh, the, the choice of him playing a Telecaster, or was that something sure.
1: that? Oh yeah, I told him it had to be a Telecaster.
0: Really? Did you uh, did you find that one, or did or did the? Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, we found it. We found it in Mississippi. We found it in a pawn shop in Yazoo City.
0: So, so it was like it was. It looks like it's a late '60s, like uh, '67, '68.
1: Yeah, something like that. I have the the stand-in. I have the Squire that was a stand-in for that guitar. Yeah, course, I have two, so I have it. It's all signed by everybody. You know, great, great uh, memories of all that, and they made me a special Crossroads strap. It's Crossroads AR. You know, I mean, we really got to be a family when you're when you're doing a movie. Uh, especially on location it's an experience like no other you yeah know, just, just a blast and we me and juke every day we'd be like okay it's your turn to ask the director we'd be like do you need us today you're doing a, no no music today great all right we go off and go to pawn shops and guitar shops and just travel around mississippi you know like hello ugly duckling ran a car i get a car from ugly duckling yeah and it's like 72 chrysler I'm headed down this road where I can see for hundred miles. There's nothing. I'm like, I don't know if I want to take this car down this road. You know? Yeah, I do not know. I think so We could break down. Point, and then at one point, my, uh, my my wife came down. You know, we were hanging out there a little bit. And of course, we then we'd go back to L.A. Like that scene where Rye, where they're playing at the end, where they're doing the, the, the head cutting thing. That was a club in Mississippi that I went to go see Albert King, and I played with Albert King. And in fact, Albert was supposed to do a video for Hot Licks the next day, and I had the whole film film crew ready to go. I had money flown in for Albert, and he just split. He just left the next day, and I remember I was talking about that to Stevie Ray. He said, "No, he didn't. He didn't forget. He didn't forget. He had to do something." Stevie's like, we'll call I went, no, no, no. Oh, I hear this problem with you and Rye. We're going to get you on the phone right now. We're going to call him right now. We're going to call Rye. I said, it's 5 a.m. in L.A. Don't call Rye, please. You know, he's like, we're going to take care of this right now. You know, Stevie Ray, wanted to make peace with everybody. It's great. Yeah. Sweet. Such a great guy. And um, one, of the, one of the coolest things, actually, that ever happened, and some of this is even on tape, in those SoundClouds, where Ralph saw me go to a club there in Greenville, Mississippi, and play and see, and, and would sit in with like Son Thomas and uh, all these, these different, you know, blues guys down there. And they'll give me a hard time. You know, they were giving me a hard time. And, uh, and Ralph says, that thing that Arlen just went through, because he came with me, because I want that in the movie. I want that in the film. Yeah, scene where they say, you know, you got some balls to do to come in here and play, you little white kid, blah blah blah, and that was based on what I had just done like the week before. Yeah, you know? and Ralph said, I want that in the film, and that, it happened.
0: That's that's fantastic because that's you know that's that's a great part of the film is is where know. you know you, you're you know not getting accepted because of you know the co- the color of your skin and and, cool. and geographic.
1: It was really happening it was real life that was going on while we were making the movie it was like like oozing its way into the film and that was that was really exciting you yeah know? and uh, the fact that me and juke we just travel around eating barbecue and finding old guitars and visiting people you know it's just uh, hanging out with little milton you know in his bus and 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 the uh, bobby blue bland bobby Bobby, yeah, Bobby Blubland was there.
0: Yeah. When
1: well, we closed the back room, he goes, all right, let's break it out. You know, right away, they were all expecting all kinds of contraband to be happening. Right. But it was just, just what an experience, what a rich experience, you know, to be chosen for that was really incredible.
0: Yeah. So, the, the next, you know, you, you did Hot Licks, so then Hot Licks becomes videos and it- yeah and and it it blows up, and you, of course you're doing you know videos that are that are you teaching, but then you also start doing a bunch of videos like like you indicated you had n Twistle and Jerry Jamot and all these guys, yeah. and then it blows up and and then you've got everyone you know from like Mick Taylor to Leroy Parnell and David Grissom and Cornell Dupree and James Burton and on yeah. and on and on I mean
1: I, I just saw this guitarinstructor.com and they say they have this thing, new lessons with James Burton. I'm like, really? Yeah. And it's my video. It's yeah. It was from like 1985 or whatever it was, you know? It's my video. It's hot licks. Yeah. Well, Hal Leonard now has the distribution and all that. So that's how that all happened.
0: Right. And they I guess they're le- leasing it out to guitarinstructor.com or something's yeah. going on. Yeah. Whatever it
1: Somehow it trickles down for yeah. a few pages from me and for James. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that was the greatest joy. Was
0: working with all those artists, you know. Yeah. What did uh, because it, you're getting to actually work with some of those artists, and I'm, I'm assuming there was a fair amount of pre-production going on because there there was a lot of thought put in. There wasn't. Not too much. Really, because you know some of the videos at that other, I guess, competitors at that point, it was more of them. You know, the guitar player just coming up. This is my solo off of such and such, and I'm going to slow it yeah. down. And there were actually concepts and different things that were taught in the, in the Hotlicks videos. And it, it, seemed, it came across that there was a little more pre-production and thought put into them. So.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I, it's amazing how we were, I, I was really on top of it all the time. You know, like I made sure that um, most of the times I would have like one meeting with the person or, you know, sometimes it was like right before shooting the video. Like out in L.A. I was doing one with Joe Pass, you know. Yeah. Joe Pass, I have to go to his house, and Joe Pass is there by the swimming pool with a giant watermelon. And I said, well, we start off with, like, you know, you tune up, you show them. He said, oh, man, do we have to do that, man? He's like, really, I gotta show them. I said, you're not showing them how to tune. You give them a note to tune, too. So you're, you're okay. So then, like, we do the video, he's like, well, I don't know, this was in tune from the factory. I don't know, like that, it becomes a joke. Yeah. But after that, um, I kind of, you know, I try to uh, just keep them focused along the way. Early on, with people like Mick Taylor and Lonnie Mack, and even John Entwistle, I'm actually on the video with them. Right. With them. And then at the point when I did the one with James Burton, I said, you know what? I just, I'm gonna I'm going to throw questions at him but then I'll take my questions out. Right. Because James was very nervous about, he felt kind of tongue tied, you know, like, what do I say? That I was able to draw this out of the players because I'm a natural player, just like that. You know, we don't have somebody that's going to be like, okay, read this, read that. No, it's like, how did you become, you know, it was like buddy guy, buddy guys a hero. of mine. Yeah. He's going, are oh, you tell me what to do? You're the boss. I'm like, Buddy Guy's telling me I'm the boss, you know. I'm like, Buddy, just go. Just start. And of course, 90% of those blues guys, they always have to teach the same T-Bone Walker lick in every video. I'm like, we could just make a T-Bone Walker anthology here just from all the blues guys. You know? Yeah. But, but uh, Buddy, all those things, it's such a joy, you know. The wildest video of all time Junior Wells. Okay. Watch that.
0: Okay. I haven't yeah. seen that one.
1: You have to watch it and think about what I went through to do that video. You know, get him out of the hotel first. Get them down to the, to the session and into another hotel. And we're walking down Broadway, 46th Street, 48th Street. And I said, he goes, oh, man, there used to be one there. There was one there and there was one right there. I said, what, music stores? He goes, no, liquor stores. I said, liquor stores? You know where all the liquor stores were?" And, like, he goes, I just need a pint of gin. I just want a pint of gin. This is like 10 a.m. Right. The whole pint. And I swear he didn't even drink any water that day. He just, gin just kept him straight, you know. And he's telling the story about first playing with muddy waters. It, it, it's more like blues philosophy watching his video. Then, like, after 20 minutes, he goes, Boop! He play that whoop, one harp note, you know. You think that's easy, you know, or whatever. Yeah. You better watch yourself. You know, he's like, it's so so cool. Yeah. But Jay Giles said to me, he says, man, that is the greatest little piece of Americana I ever watched. He says, you can do a video with me anytime because I saw that you did that with Junior Wells. You know, So, I mean, this constant this flow of the artists and the musicians and what they were watching. And that, you know, in the early days, I had to chase these guys down. Nobody wanted to do a video right. talking about what they were about. Next thing you know, they want, they're chasing me. Oh, I got a record deal. Now I want to do a video where I oh, own I play two guitars at once. I've got two necks Like, this. people are going to buy that. They're not going to learn to play that. way. But right. the joy of it was I'm documenting these artists, just like what you're doing now with me and what you've done such a good job at. Well, thank okay. you. Doc, yeah, that's no, true. I mean, I, I've watched your, your Reggie Young video Three times already, you
0: know. Wow.
1: wonderful! So, so you know you realize at certain junctures, it's like when I was doing a lot of those more elderly jazz guys, you know. Yeah. So, you know, I got Tal Farlow, and I got Joe Morello on drums, I got Salvador and I got, Mun- Faldor, and I got uh,
0: Mundell Low and
1: Mundel well, was so great, and Charlie Bird. He remembered teaching my classical teacher. He's like, yeah, I'm a big, tall woman from the Northwest. I'm like, that's right. Shirley Duall She was the woman who gave me a few classical lessons, but then when I bought an electric guitar, she kicked me out. <laughs> of course. She gave me a great respect for the right hand. I was like 11, 10 or 11 years old, and I would take lessons from her down in Greenwich Village. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah, Charlie Bird. Tal was wonderful because Tal did some audio tapes for me before the video period. Tal was just so great. And then, you know, went on, Joe Pass and people like that. And George Benson was the last one I did for Hot Lakes. Yeah.
3: You
1: know? And uh, that was fantastic. What a great guy. We keep, I saw him at the Long Island Guitar Show, and he just started buying video. He had an armful. He goes, Emily's my girl. You know, Emily Remler. Yeah. Goes on, and tells my man, tells my man, and he's holding all. I'm like, they're yours. Take them. You know. <laughs> Two weeks later, I'm in his house shooting video. with
0: him. Yeah. Well, there's a couple. A, 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 I've seen many of them, but there's a couple of them that were all-time you know favorites of mine. And you know, one would be the. Of course, you already mentioned the James Burton one, and that one was yeah. just because you know really you only had his recordings, and uh, you know, and you were just trying to pick it off the. Uh, you know off the we record or whatever
1: had at that point. I mean, we had played together yeah. in fact we had the same lawyer we had the same lawyer um which was kind of a crazy thing but my lawyer at that time just wanted all his favorite guitar players can you get me dwayne eddie can you get me james burton like sure and we're all like one little happy family yeah <laughs> new york lawyer you know yeah but, uh, who loved guitar but, uh, yeah, James, but you were going to bring up a video. Or- oh, I was, I
0: was, you know, the James Burton one was just, you know, phenomenal. And, he, yes, I could, I could tell even from the beginning that he seemed a little nervous. I mean, he, he of course, played great, but you can tell that, you know, he didn't really, uh, yeah.
1: I'm going to show an example. i show an example. Yeah. Come, next, I'm going to show you an example. He has high voice, you know. Yeah. Dwayne Eddie used to do a great imitation of him. like, yeah, it's James Burton. You know, he had that really nice high voice. James is so sweet. But if you watch the beginning of that video, we did a thing where he's walking down 48th Street. Yes. Right? And he looks in the window of Rudy's music, and we took the whole window and made it all James Burton. Right. And all hot licks. And he's there, he go like, yeah. We used to do something. Like if you see me in like a paisley jacket, he'd go. Come on, let's go see Thumbs. Let's go see Thumbs Carlisle play. I'm like, James, I'm in the middle of performing here. Come on, go see Thumbs. You took yeah. me away from the crowd. I'm there at the NAMM show. Yeah. And I'm wearing a silver jacket. Next thing you know, I'm there with Thumb, James and Thumbs, who I love. I love Thumbs, Carla.
0: Yeah, what a great player.
1: What an amazing guy.
0: Yeah. So D- Danny Gatton, the, the, both Danny Gatton videos are great, but the second one, the rhythm guitar one, was... Yeah, that was such a... Uh, I think that, of of all the instructional videos, that's that's one that really had a big impact on me, just all the things he covered and also it was so much easier to digest of course in the 1980s than than his first video where he's you know really you know playing quite fast and when, but um, he's using I,
1: you know, first video was 89 yeah the second video was 84 was 94 yeah strictly rhythm and yeah the entertainment value of that is so high he was having such a great time and being mr entertainment you know come on out here roadhog Yes. When he me Roadhog, I'm like, oh, I love him. I love him. Yeah. We were such close friends at that point, you know. So uh, there's nothing, nothing you could say or do that would stop us from just having a good time. And uh, he had the whole band there, you know, he had Tim Bieri and John yeah. Presley on bass. So fantastic, you know. And <laughs> no, it was, it was absolutely brilliant, you know. Yeah. one of those things where you don't want to miss a second of it.
0: Yeah. It it blew my mind to to just to see him uh you know he had that weird art deco you know crazy looking telecaster
1: toilet seat.
0: Yeah, with the a, with a with a you know Vibrolux and he had a little rack mount delay unit and the tone that he had was just so fat and it was just like I guess he had such a great touch on the guitar.
1: Oh, of course, yeah. And of course, you know, when you have those Barden pickups which can be very powerful and strong and very searing. You, it takes a while to get control over that sound. You know, of course, it's kind of like chrome. It's got flash and chrome and and brilliance to it. But Danny liked that, you know, and Danny turned me on to those pickups and that kind of sound. In fact, I had a flame, uh, flame guitar, my first one. Yeah. He set that guitar up for me. He put in the pickups. He did everything for me with it, and uh, he was just, how could you not end up being influenced? And also just, just the joy of knowing him as a friend it was an easy friendship to, to hang on to. You know, he was sometimes very hard to reach, uh, out of commission for long periods of time where you couldn't reach him. But then you'd get him, like, he'd, he'd call call each other sometimes really late, late, late at night, like one in the morning. And we always had this greeting thing. Of course, if he respected you, he'd pick up and go, why I'm going to... I, uh, I'm gonna, you know, and then I have to come back at him with that, too. Yeah. He said, is it true that Jeff Beck can play all that stuff like Scotty Moore? I said, yeah. He goes, why that l- lousy? yeah, <laughs> Yeah, you know, like, you do that. Like something from a cartoon or something, why I oughta. Right. A well, wonderful sense of humor. And, of course, when we did the Conan O'Brien show, we had such a blast, you know. And uh, he, would, he just, you know, a terrible, terrible loss. Yes. A gigantic loss, and I couldn't believe it. Um, he was uh, such a—I mean, what a soul! I mean, he—all he really. The reason we really became friends was the first time he saw me with my family, when he saw my children and me, and then, oh, okay, now I get it. There's Arlen. Okay, now we can really be friends. You know, we. We loved this uh, car. We were into the vintage cars. Right. First time I ever met him, we coming up to New York when he had he was on the cover of Guitar Player. Remember when he had the mask? Yes. World, World's best unknown no. guitar player. Such a terrible right. thing to pin on him. But um, and he said, "Well, you got a Buick Skylark?" He's like, "I got the wheels for that car." And it was he was playing at the Riverside Memorial Church in New York, in Manhattan, on a snowy Winter's Night with Jack Cassidy and also Yorma was there. Because he and Jack Cassidy went way back in D.C. They were buddies with Jack Cassidy, you know, from Jefferson Airplane. and Right. And then he goes, um, he shows up with a pickup, a beat-up pickup truck and four wheels in the back of the truck, and it's snowing like mad. And we're sitting in his truck, he's smoking a cigarette, and we're negotiating for the wheels. (laughs) (laughs) I'm <laughs> in the middle of Manhattan. I'm negotiating for four hot rod wheels, four, four Kelsey Hayes Skylark wheels. All right, it'll be uh, four fifty, whatever you know. And then that's it. We, we worked out the deal, and then we go in and we play the gig. That's yeah. the first time I got to hear him play in person. You know, I didn't know much about him except I kept hearing his name all the time. You know, like like I would get called on sessions in New York where they'd say. We're trying to get Danny Gatton, but Danny Gatton says they should. We should use you. He was throwing me work, or like I played on some Kentucky Fried Chicken jingle or something, you know. But um, I would always hear about him also from Caesar Diaz. Yeah. She would be like, Caesar was like, "Don't be like Danny, man. You know, Danny just cares about cars, man. You you start play the guitar. Don't do so much, you know." get out there and play more guitar. Don't just get into cars like Danny. Cause he was making it sound like Danny was doing too much of that, you know? Yeah. But that was his escape. You know, that was his another hobby. Same thing with me, you know, except I won't mess up my hands doing it. He, he and Jeff Beck were showing me all the, you know, broken nails and black thumb from hitting it with a, I said, I'm not going to do that if I'm a musician.
0: Yeah. Cuts on your fingers and stuff like I- that. Yeah.
1: Not only to the fact that I don't know how to do any of that stuff.
0: So uh, so Telecasters, so when, when did you kind of fall under the spell of the Telecaster and, and just had to have one?
1: Well, I always knew that when I used to go down to 48th Street all the time in Manhattan, I always knew that when in doubt, you could always get a telly for $180. Everything else was getting very expensive. But the Telecaster was like a working man's guitar. You could always fall back on buying one of those. And then when I started, I saw that picture of Jeff Beck on the old Yardbirds album with that. With the uh, yeah. S4 with the black pick I'm like, oh, wow, that looks really cool. Yeah. So I wanted to get one of those. So when I was on the road with Prime, I was already playing a, a 54 Strat, which, you know, it, it's Ash and it's got very much a Telecaster kind of neck. So it wasn't, it was already, I was like kind of playing Tele even though I was playing a Strat, you yeah. know. Uh, so then when I found, when I got my 53, uh, a friend of mine, Howie Emerson at that time, told me, oh, you want a guitar like that? Uh, call up this guy in Boston. Gave me a number of this guy. And the guy drove down with a Volkswagen. I was living on 82nd Street near Central Park in the city. And uh, the guy came down with a Volkswagen with like nine Telecasters in it, vintage Teleas. He even had a 59 uh, Sunburst Found uh, Esquire. Yeah, the thing was anywhere from two to four hundred dollars. Oh golly! Yeah, he couldn't find a parking space, so I actually went down and I just played the guitar acoustically. Which, by the way, I've actually used that fifty-three Tele for acoustic overdubs because it's so resonant, close mic. I was able to do acoustic overdubs, because we didn't have an acoustic on hand, so. I said, "Well, I like this one. It just feels right, and it sounds good on, on the street. I didn't even plug it in, yeah. and I paid four hundred dollars. Boom, that's it. Fifty three tellies. I still have it. This is not This is the Nacho Caster number one that I also love. And the, the telly has been retired from live performing pretty much. There's a video on YouTube of me. There's a Roy Buchanan tribute. Me and Jimmy Weeder, and G. E. Smith. Yeah." at uh, City Winery in New York, and this guitar was not functioning, right? There was something wrong with the jack, so I actually brought the 53 out that night. And, uh, you know, it's a non-radius fingerboard. It's just all curved, going all the way up, so I said, oh, yeah, now I remember what that felt like, you know, but that guitar still sings, you know, it's just something about those It's paper light, you know, really, really porous. Very, very Resonant, and you know, I love Tellys. I love Strats. I love Les Pauls. I love 335s. I love uh, I love them all. But yeah, Telecaster, if you if I had to have one guitar, I would do the Telly.
0: Yeah. So again, Nacho, who I mean, a lot of people know him from you know he he wrote the Blackguard book, and he's a you know famous you know collector in uh, in book. Spain. And so he uh, he so did he make this specifically as a copy of your guitar?
1: Not, not that I know of, I mean, uh, Paco Pasquale brought it to me 10 years ago, 9 or 10 years ago. And uh, it certainly has all the elements that my guitar has, except it's also got the uh, the in-between position. You get a little bit of an overdrive. It's got the wah, it's got the, the, the volume, it has to be very fast. As Danny used to say, make sure it has an aggressive <laughs> you know, guitars, You cut yourself. Right. So yeah, I love this guitar. I've used it live now for uh, 10 years, you know, and the treble, the Lawler pickups. I really love it. It's really worked out well for me, and it's just you know you're not worried about that you're taking a a forty thousand dollar guitar out on the road. Right. Still bash it and beat it up like I did my fifty three for years. Yeah. But it's uh, telecasters. It's just something. I think they really got it right the first time. You know, it's amazing. Isn't it incredible that the first three basic electric guitars are what everything is kind of like still playing off of? You know. And I love my 52. I love the early Les Pauls, too. I can't bend behind the nut. I can't do the volume as well. If I do the volume as well, I have to play with one hand just to control the far away. Right, right. So whenever I specify to have a guitar made, I like to have three pickups on tellies now. And, um, you know, and I have to have a really fast volume and tone knob, And, you know... Hopefully if I get the position if you have three pickups, position, you know, four and position two, that you can also pull up on a knob and get a get like an overdrive. I have the Warren guitar like that. That's the one with the flames.
0: Yeah. And and, uh, and not
1: which not the other one, but
0: and what you're just so i make sure uh, everyone understands when you're talking about an overdrive sound you're talking about the two pickups in series so that it's much higher output so that it it hits the amp harder
1: they come become like a two rail like a humbucker right also what happens is yeah that noise canceling in that position and my new delaney my delaney guitar signature guitar that's got that all those positions yeah so you get about seven eight sounds you know that it's great you don't have to i used to change guitars so many times on stage and i come to a gig with like five or six guitars right i want to be up here just with one and maybe one in case i break a string and i've got my guitar that i use for slide yeah so I go to a gig with two guitars, maybe three tops.
0: Yeah. So now this the nacho guitar you're playing today, does it it is it wired in the in the middle position to be that series, or is it the standard vintage style? Or actually Well is what it,
1: happens is the middle position is both. Right. But when you have it in position uh, two or four, the so two, there you get the, the humbucker.
0: Right. You have, uh, you have uh, again, you, you mentioned it earlier, but you're a classical guitar teacher. You have a really good right hand technique, and sometimes you'll palm the pick and, uh, and just use your fingers, and sometimes you use picking fingers.
1: I don't fingers. totally palm it. If I palm it, I put it down. Okay. The guy once did a video for me like that. He goes, here's how I finger pick. I put the pick here, and then I said, so why don't you put the pick down? You're going to do that for an hour?
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> here's how I finger pick. Here we go. No, but I do the I do the pick and finger yeah. hybrid. Yeah, I didn't know it was hybrid. They called it that in guitar player. Like, oh, I'm using a hybrid pick. Yeah, but like if I want to do. Like, well, Danny was great. Too.
2: Country flamenco, right?
1: start and stuff the buddy
2: guy. I so said what about this? Let's play in Goldenheim.
1: In that overdrive thing, I'm a big fan too of the the bass setting, the neck setting on a tele. I find that I use the treble less and less as my ears start to hurt me <laughs> more and more. Yeah. But I mean, you know, the treble thing is great. You know, like what Roy used to do with Roy would be he had the Telecaster still where the bass pickup had the Resistor or whatever it is, where it gets really quiet. So the minute he switched to the bass pickup, the whole band would come down. You know, be really, really quiet. But um, I'm the opposite. I use mostly the bass. Side. The, the next. Then pickup. I then I kick in. Yeah, then I kick into the treble pickup later on. Yeah. Because it's it's too loud, too harsh. I'd rather make it easier on myself and also easier on the audience. You know, because I'm going to start hitting false harmonics, like squeals and stuff. Whoa. You know, yeah. That, that takes its toll. Yeah. <laughs> so, it
0: looks like you had like a, a a Dunlop green pick. On those.
1: Yeah. I like, I don't know if it's I like the thickness or if I like the greenness. I don't know. <laughs> but, oh, the green new deal, the green new pick.
0: Yeah. So and then, is, yeah. And, are you still using tens?
1: Tens. Yeah, always yeah. tens. And what I noticed a lot of times when I'm playing rhythm, those kind of patterns, I realized, I always noticed that my index finger nail keeps getting worn down. And I realized that it's nail down, pick up. Nail down, pick up. And if I was just using a pick, I'd probably lose it.
3: Yeah.
1: So I could grip it nice and easy. Stay really down close to the strings. So it's nail up, I'm nail down, pick up. So the pick is like just sticking out of the side there. Right. I didn't realize that for years. I was doing that, you know. <laughs>
0: And are you using the point of the pick or are you using the rounded end?
1: Uh, it's the point, but it's slightly angled. Okay. You well, know, it's hard for me. Again, these are the things that I learned when I'm teaching. Yeah. I teach, oh, I didn't know that I was doing this, but this is what I'm doing, you know. That was the great thing about teaching early back in the early days. We were talking about before how I got into uh, the transition and, and knowing what I was about. You know, I had to know what made me the player I was at that time, whatever it was, you know, like when I was playing slide, you know, I didn't realize I was doing all this wonderful blocking and damping. Do you want me to show a little slide? Do you want to? Sure. Yeah, okay, working on switch. Yeah. Yeah. It's right here. It's right here. It's close by. Yeah. Good. But yeah, I, you know, the slide stuff is also a very big part of what I do and what I've been teaching over the years. And uh, I've been using this with the Oahu pickup for a pretty good time now. I have many different guitars I use for But uh, I like a nice, heavy brass like, you know... <laughs> The only sound I'm going to make because you're dealing with a foreign object here. I realized, oh, I'm stopping four strings with my thumb, I'm stopping the high E with my ring. And now, right. only the B can ring, right? Then as you're introducing other strings, then your hand allows that. Yeah. So, if I'm moving down the scale, and that's turning into a teaching video, right? <laughs>
0: Yeah, dampening is everything on slide. Yeah.
1: More about what you don't play than what you're playing. And so the thumb becomes this dampening tool. And even as you come down, I still finger pick with these fingers. And the thumb is blocking only if I want to Then the thumb comes into play, you know, keeping time. Yeah. I save, it, I save it for the bass notes. Yeah. So, so, yes, it's it's just, you know, slide is, slide was, believe it or not, the natural progression for me. I went from classical to slide. And so when they told me they wanted me to do that in crossroads, that the kid was a classical player, I I said, okay, well, that's actually the progression that I went from. From classical into lead guitar, but also into slide, always slide. And um, that was, you know... Amazing how that kind of works. Even when they called him Lightning in the movie, because he heard that this guy in college used to call me Lightning. So he took up on the name Lightning. It was yeah. my, nickname, my nickname. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great discipline. And this also has that in-between setting where you're using this pickup and that, and it's like wired and serious. And then you're yeah, the thing that Ralph plays at the crossroads that's the thing I recorded when I was telling you about that memory. Oh. landslide yeah. i just moved it up and ralph heard that he said that's what i want to play at so that was when i recorded it that morning on that, that little pv battery powered amp. i still have all that stuff i have like the techno from the movie you know and so many great great things you know that, that was an amazing memory for sure yeah lifetime kind of occurrence
0: yeah so. Let's let's close out talking about you've uh, you did a, a a recent album on uh, you know featuring all you know Telecaster players and uh, and then you,
1: Telecasters.
0: yeah t- yeah and wow you made I mean
1: this one you mean this one
0: yes that <laughs> one Arlen ladies
1: and gentlemen <laughs> go
0: go out and buy it today
1: go buy it today come on but wait there's more yes painted black yes. stone color, slide guitar summit. Yes, put all, put all the best slide players. In.
0: How much would I pay for that, Arlen?
1: <laughs> I really don't know, but at, today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, and and then you uh, what what's the, uh, the the current album that that album has Brad Paisley and and Albert Lee. Yeah. It's got everyone and their dog on it. You know all all the great all the great telly players.
1: My dog on one track. Yeah, you hear Penny. No, but there's um yeah Albert Lee. Uh, I, I wanted to have James Burton on. But my dear friend James, he was going through uh, losing his son. Yeah. Wonderful Jeff Burton, who I yes. played at the Danny Gatton tributes as well, and uh, he was just a wonderful guy. So James was going through hell, like I've been through. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, it was like. Um, I, I w- always wanted to do a part two just so there's like certain people I really want to get on that album as well. I had to stop at some point.
3: Yeah.
1: Like at one point when it was very hard getting Brad Paisley to do his thing, I was going to have uh, Duke Levine, who I love. is a great player. Yes. He with him, He did a really nice interview with him. And uh, so maybe that'll be on part two. Who knows? Uh, me and Greg... Martin, we've already been talking about a part two of uh, the Slide Summit, which, as it turns out, that was the final thing that Johnny Winter ever recorded. We did Rocket 88 together. Yeah. What a great album. That was a blast. Leroy Parnell and all those guys. I mean, C- Cindy Cashdollar, you know, David Lindley.
0: Lightweights.
1: Just all lightweights, yeah. Yeah. Jack Pearson, oh god, what a pleasure to get to know Jack Pearson. Oh yeah, like my favorite guitar player now, you know. What I mean, and what a great guy, you know. Just been a great singer, and so he's on, he's on the new Telly album too. And they interviewed him, you know, for the little film they did. On. He goes, well, Arlen knows I like Tellys too, so he did this album. I met him on the slide. Some, it's like, how does he talk? Because the moustache blocks the speaking. So yes. Is he really moving his lips? We don't know. But
2: <laughs>
1: I think you sure know it because Jack is Jack's just the best. You know? yeah. All those guys. To me, the joy has always been to be with my peers, to play with my peers. That's all I ask, and to have the respect of my peers. That's how it started in the beginning with Hot Lips.
3: You know? yeah.
1: It's like we'll do it for you all because we like the way you play too, and we like working with you. You know, so good. You know, it's not like you're doing a video for me. It's like we're doing this together. Yeah. With Hot Licks, it was years before I even let on that it was my company. I just wanted to be one of the guys. What better tribute can you have than to be right next to John Entwistle and Steve and boom, boom, boom. You know, that's what makes you elevated to the right level that you want to be. Not like, Arnold Roth presents. No. Yeah. Everybody'd be like, Oh, you mean this is your company? I didn't know that. You
0: yeah.
1: know, like, and I'm like, Well good, that's how I that's how I wanted it to be conceived. Yeah,
0: and it, it takes a certain amount of humility to spotlight, you know, other players all the time. And
1: yeah, yeah, for me kudos. It's, you know, I learned, I learned from all these people. You sit down with Brent Mason and the first Brent was getting kinda of pissed off. He didn't like the fact that I I had this the toughest song on the album was for me and him. Yeah, the song called Roadworthy. And he, he picked it up like it was like nothing, which I knew he would. Yeah, but that was so much fun, you know. It was so much fun because he had done a video for Hot Lakes, but I wanted to play with him. I wanted to actually record it, and that's, uh, that's the joy of it. Really, and Tommy Hambridge, just a great producer, produced both of those albums. You know, in between, I did that Rolling Stones painted black acoustic stone. And people told me, I didn't realize that nobody had ever done an all-acoustic album of Stone songs, of all Stone songs. So, of course, a lot of it's from that period of the Stones, when they were playing a lot of acoustic.
0: Right. A lot
1: of 12-string, you know, as tears go by and things like that. I love that period of the early Stones.
0: Yeah, where it was, yeah, the acoustic was more featured in it. Yeah.
1: And Ryan Jones was a big part of it. Yes. Great guitar parts, you know, so... Yeah. That's a whole other era. When you talk about the early Stones, it's like you know, 50 years ago. Right. I was the first kid in America to recognize Charlie Watts. I was in the store buying my, I was 11 years old. I was getting my first electric guitar. And there I look up and there's Charlie Watts. And I knew right away it was him. They were playing their first New York gig that night. He's in the store. It was a store called Ben's Music. And he's there with some drumsticks. And my dad goes, go ahead, go ahead. I said, that's Charlie Watts and Stones. I get his autograph, and he wrote Charlie Watts of the Rolling Stones. Okay. And then I told that story on, um, on the BBC years later in the 80s. I was on the BBC with uh, Stuart Coleman, who was a great producer and a uh, good friend of mine. And uh, the phone rings in the studio, and it's Char- the guy that was with Charlie that day, he said, you were the first kid in America to recognize Charlie. Charlie never forgot it. He said, we thought you were this charming little boy. This charming little boy. Charming. Said,
2: Listen,
1: you guys have a gig for me? Can You like, You need a guitar player? Stone yeah. Him? Said, Come on. But uh, we have. And then he came down that night. I was playing in London. I was giving a clinic, teaching at some pub. Nothing like those pubs in England, boy. It's great. We'll yeah. get together. You're having a pint and you're talking. It's just... They really know how to do it over there. They have such a, a blast, you know. One guy said to me one time, he says, "You gave a clinic there. We just go there to fight, <laughs> get and drunk also, and fight." My clinic almost ended up in a fight. I mean, because what? You not no harmonic minor? No, no. The guy was like ready to punch me or something. That was weird. That was up in in uh, Birmingham, or Manchester, one of those tough northern towns. Right. But. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: he came down that night and saw me play, and it was just. It was supposed to be. A, there was a legend that Mark Knopfler was going to sit in with me that night. He didn't show. So, whatever. I did a lot of, you know. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, Arlen, I really appreciate you doing this. This was this was uh, fantastic to kind of get to get to sit down and and uh, and interview you and kind of get more of your story because. Pleasure. You know, Thank I've you. I've learned a lot from from you from your from your books, from your yeah. videos, and uh, you know your column in Guitar Player magazine. You know, years ago,
1: that, that column,
0: that yeah. column
1: really uh, surprisingly, you know, because at that time we were starting Hot Licks, and it was like having a full page ad.
2: Yes, you know,
1: presenting to people. You know, so people really Tom Wheeler, the late great Tom Wheeler, told me that that was always voted number one. And readership, he said, there wasn't even any closeness, it was like number one for 10 straight years. And they yeah. made a book, they made a book into it called, you know, Hot Guitar. Yeah, and you do know that I did uh, those online lessons for a bunch of years for Gibson,
0: yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Are those still available? Are they still out
1: there? What I understand, they are actually still available, okay, on there, but you kind of have to, to weave around. It's like they quote, like the the archives or something like, like okay. that.
0: Because those, those were great.
1: They were great. I would bang them out. You know? yeah. I did one, one day I did 70 in one day. And I remember the, the guy wrote down, unbelievable output. I'm seeing him write. Well, they were only five or seven minutes a piece. So I'm like, okay, let's go on. Next, next. Give me another guitar. Boom, 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 boom. Okay, he's suspended forth. All right. Yeah. Everything's a lesson. Yeah. Everything's a lesson. So I didn't have to even pre-prepare like they told me to do that, but I just go from one thought to the next to the next. And then they will slide, different tunings, different, you know, stuff. But you can spend five to seven minutes on something, and it would be wonderful. I remember I set uh, at a sort of uh, goal for myself when I did my hot licks, my 150-plus hot licks for guitar, you know, in an hour. You know, and I realized if I could do that, if I could actually really teach them, wasn't just like here's lick one, here's lick two, actually contains teaching, that I could easily do that for Gibson. You know, they called me up. And I'm like, thank God. You know, they 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 uh, supported me for you know, about seven years there doing that. I wrote blogs, and I had even had a Tuesday afternoon chat, Arlen Roth room, You know, <laughs> that was pretty funny, but uh, you know, it was. Um, uh, it was a great experience to do that, really. Because you know, Ari Sertival, who was working for Gibson at the time, he called me up and I said, no, we can't find your stuff anywhere. We can't get any response from Music Sales, who Music Sales had bought my company. That I said, well, look, I'll do a whole fresh series for you. you know? And they'd fly me down. And I literally, I would do like 50 to 70 in a day. Because at that time, that concept was going to be your lesson of the day. Yes. Really, lesson of the day. I said, but what if people aren't tuned in? (laughs) So you know, then it turned into lesson of the week, lesson of the month, and then nothing changed at all. They were just all there as an archive. But I had done literally a thousand, a thousand.
0: So you you alluded, you alluded to the fact that you sold hot licks. Uh, a while back, and so so, do you have any connection with Hot Licks at all anymore?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, I get some little royalties here and there. Yeah, but the problem with Hot Licks was, you know, after I lost my wife and daughter, that yes, I couldn't function, and I wasn't the, uh, uh, a business guy. Just somebody who came up with the idea, and my wife was the brilliant one who was able to keep the business running. And uh, once that happened, and everybody was stealing from me, you know, somebody came in and robbed all the money that Hotlicks was making, and uh, never paid any artists any royalties anymore. When the whole company is based on the on the trust between me and those artists, you know, we're peers.
2: Right.
3: I
1: didn't see persons pocketing a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, without even telling me, and telling me, oh, you know, you can't make any money. The tapes are doing really badly. I'm like, okay, whatever you say. People say you're the best. You're the best at what you do, you know. So at that point, I had to sell the company. It took me seven years just to sell the company, and the company was just sold for what was owed. Just the artist royalties. I didn't make a penny. They kept me on for three years um, as a consultant, and then proceeded not to consult. Right. I'm like, why are you putting this video DVDs out where everybody, the guitar is cut off. I said, the guitar is the whole thing. You got Brian Setzer from the neck up and the Gretsch is gone. Right. Oh yeah, we know, we hate those, we hate those designs. I said, well, why didn't you ask me about it? You're paying me to consult. I was sitting there, I was at the conference table, pounding my fist in anger. I said, this is what they look like and you have somebody else introducing the videos, not me? It's like doing the Beatles without George Martin. I'd say you had somebody else reading a teleprompter yeah you know? oh we now we know now we know we didn't know you had bon jovi we didn't know yeah well look at the catalog you bought the damn catalog
0: yeah and there's so, so many titles that have never been like the cornell dupree or there's so many others that have never been uh, you know uh, you know and reissued
1: mine like yeah. my acoustic a to z i did that acoustic which was only two months after i lost my wife and daughter that was like an autobiographical outpouring seven hours straight a video guitar player said it was the greatest videos ever made like they said you need not look at anything else this is what it, is. it still hasn't been reissued
0: wow yeah.
1: and uh i think i don't know if lonnie max were reissued yet no yeah i mean there's a bunch still that they are going to come out and now how leonard's doing a great job they're doing um, uh, video books.
0: Yes, and, I saw those.
1: Yeah, that's what they're starting to do. In fact, I did two new ones for them. I did a slide guitar one and a finger-picking one. So, no, they're doing a good job. Now that it's with Hal Leonard, Hal Leonard, in fact, Hal Leonard has all my old books, now, all the stuff that I used, that I did for all those other companies. Right. Now I'm all under the auspices of Hal Leonard. So they're doing a good job. Music sales, not so much. Yeah. I was excited about music sales because I'd written my first three books for them and we had a nice relationship, but the videos kind of got lost in their catalog. They were just into buying up videos and catalogs, but not really actively promoting them. My company was all about hot legs. That was it. So that was my baby, you know, uh, you know, the legacy though is still there. People know what I did. And, uh, I keep going on. I keep teaching. I, I've done a few lessons now online for Sam Ash Music. They had me do a few right before the pandemic happened, and maybe I'll go back to them at some point and continue doing it. But they're getting tons of views, and you know, I, I like passing it on. People love. People are actually used to the give and take of me teaching, so they're used to me as their teacher. So, yeah,
0: you're yeah. you're a great teacher, Arlen. and thank you for all that you've done. You know, for the guitar. You know for guitar players for you know the past golly 40 you know 40 plus years you know where
1: you've you're continuing it too you're you're part yeah. of that legacy that ongoing thing and i really appreciate what you're doing
0: well thank you're you
1: this. yeah
0: well it was an honor to have you on arlen and thank you so much for doing it and uh, god bless you all,
1: right. all the best thanks for having me all right take care